I just want to welcome you on behalf of Temple Bayan. I believe we have our 17th um, annual speaker, a scholar for the month, and this is the 16th time that Temple Batyam is hosted. Somehow we missed one of the early years, but it's such a pleasure to welcome the Community Scholar Program. It's added so much to our community. And to introduce our speaker, I will introduce Fran Gustin, who will give you a little background, and then we'll get to hear what's going on. Thank you, Mickey. Good evening, everyone. My name is Fran Gustin, and on behalf of Ari Katz and the CSP board, I'd like to welcome you all to Temple Bat Yam for the 20th program out of 21 in all of our one-month scholar, <coughs> Professor David Ruderman. Ari asked me to stand in for him tonight to introduce our speaker. But first, we want to thank Rabbis Gersh Zilberman and Rabbi Raina Gewurz for their hospitality and for co-sponsoring this event. We're sorry they could not join us tonight, but we understand they're next door because their children are in a play. We understand. But they invite you all to have coffee and pastries, as Mickey mentioned, at the conclusion of our program. Back to our main event. As many of you know, in fact, I've seen you all. We've all traveled throughout the county following Professor Ruderman. Professor Ruderman comes to us from the University of Pennsylvania, where he's taught for the past 23 years. Before that, he taught for many years at Yale, and before that, at the University of Maryland. For 20 years, he headed the University of Pennsylvania's Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies, which, as you all know, is a preeminent institution in the world of Jewish scholarship. I first heard of Professor Ruderman when I bought two courses that he did for the teaching company, which is now known as the Great Courses. The 48 lectures were extraordinary, and I highly recommend them. But as I've learned in the past month, even though he was great on DVD, Professor Ruderman is even better in person because of the genuine passion and enthusiasm that he brings to the material. It's a lot of fun to see his eyes light up as he helps us all to connect the dots. Let's just say this. Professor Ruderman is unquestionably a scholar's scholar. To me, the mark of a gifted teacher is that they leave you wanting to know more about the subject. You, Professor Ruderman, are a truly gifted teacher. Please join me in welcoming Professor David Ruderman. Uh, thank you, Fran. Uh, that was probably the nicest introduction I've had, and I've had 20 of them, so uh, I really appreciate it. Um, I am still not used to these lights. I can't tell whether it's dark or light, and I can hardly see you, but, uh, you know, it's like giving a lecture in the dark. Uh, but uh, hopefully, oh, I recognize you out there somewhere. Yeah, okay, all right. Um, so... Um, I'm going to have to do, when I, when I can't see my notes, I just wing it. So I will, I will probably end up doing that as well. Um, anyway, it is a pleasure to be here. Um, I have been to Batyam once before and actually was for a service. And <clears throat> it's a very beautiful campus and a very lovely congregation. Um, and as I uh, close my uh, tour of Orange County, I've been around to a lot of synagogues. 
um, this is really, uh, it's been a wonderful pleasure and uh, a very meaningful experience uh, for me and for Phyllis who was here tonight. Um, <clears throat> this, let me explain the context of this lecture. Um, and I'm looking around, there's no clock around here, so I'm gonna take off, as professors do, take off their watch. Um, and it's now 10 after seven, and I promise you that I will be done at the latest by eight, okay? Uh, hold me to that. Ari is not here, and he's like the time clock, but um, I will uh, uh, carefully watch myself. 45 minutes, I'm giving myself five more minutes more. Uh, I hope you don't mind. Um, this is the third, uh, what I've done is sort of cluster the lectures into topics. And those of you who have not heard me before, uh, I just want to <clears throat> sort of review where we are. This is a series on In Search of Saviors or the Messianic Idea in Jewish History or the Messianic Impulse, and I've already given two lectures. Uh, I'm not sure where they were. I mean, it's all a blur already, but I did uh, give two previous lectures on uh, the Messianic Idea in Judaism. And let me review in only a minute or two what I was doing so I can place this particular lecture in context. Uh, in my first lecture, which I think was in a university... Uh, synagogue, um, I gave an overview of the Messianic idea, and I actually taught a text by Moses Maimonides. Uh, in the next lecture, uh, I spoke about uh, Shabtai Tzvi, the most remarkable uh, false messiah or messianic figure of the 17th century, who challenged the very norms and foundations of Judaism. And I spoke about its aftermath and about the so-called Sabbatean movement the movement of his messianic followers. And now this third lecture is to be devoted to the Messiah idea and modern Jewish experience. So I want to draw together the strands of the previous two lectures and to speak primarily now about modern Jewish history. I made one point in the first lecture and also in the second one, which I want to repeat, because I think it's important as we look at this whole long history. Uh, and that is the great insight of the scholar of mysticism and Judaism, Gershon Sholom, of a kind of dialectical relationship to the messianic idea. On the one hand, the Messiah is a very positive force. It pushes people forward. It defers their gratification. They are always working to make life better. They are striving to transform the world. And they wait and they know that however bad the situation is, Ultimately, their life will be better, and particularly their life for their children. At the same time, there is a kind of uncertainty, uh, a kind of insecurity about this messianic idea. The question arises, if we are all striving for this messianic idea, if we observe the laws of Judaism, the, the halakha, as it is called, and we observe the moral law. Um, when the Messiah comes, is all this necessary? Can't we just party after that? You know, the Messiah is here. Let's just have a good time and forget about the norms of Judaism. And that concept seemed to be rather ambiguous. Maimonides, in the text that I taught uh, at University uh, Synagogue, um, it talks about, don't get so excited. Don't get, you know, too 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 
fired up by this idea. Nothing will really change except that we will be free to observe the law. In other words, that's a kind of rabbinic view of the messianic age. In other words, the norms and of course the rabbis that enforce the norms will remain in place. So that ambiguity uh, is what Sholem calls uh, the first idea is the restorative idea, restoring the, the laws to what they were, in other words, to keeping the norms intact. And the other idea is the anarchic idea, the utopian idea. We don't know really what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. Creating uncertainty and creating the possibility that somehow the authority of the Messiah will challenge the very idea of Judaism and the rabbis themselves. So that's the only insight that I wanted to make, which I made uh, in my introductory lecture, and now I want to go on. So now I want to speak about the modern experience. And basically, if we were to characterize what makes modernity within Jewish history, I would argue that among many factors, one of them that would be prominent is the breakdown of the traditional Jewish community. Prior to the modern period, Jews lived under divine law, as buttressed by secular authorities. It was in the interest of the state to allow this corporate Jewish community to exist and to allow its rabbis to exercise law. In the modern era, with the emergence of the secular state and nationalism, it was no longer in the interest of the state to allow individual Jewish entities to exist with their own authority in their own right. And therefore, what we see is the undermining of the corporate structure of the Jewish community. Now, synagogues exist, rabbis exist, but they are no longer structures that have the authority of the law behind them. They are more or less voluntary associations. In other words, you can be here on Friday night, or uh, as I said in one other lecture, I don't remember, you can be watching, um, what do I watch on Friday night? Blue Blood, that's it. Yeah, you can be watching Blue Blood. You can either listen to the rabbi or uh, who's the actor in Blue Blood? Anybody watch still? Yeah, right. Or Thomas Selleck. You know, choose. This is a choosing society. This is what the modern era means. It means you can watch Blue Blood. That's Remember that. That's my deepest insight of the 20 lectures. Uh, only kidding. You're not laughing. Um, so in any case... Um, Judaism becomes a voluntary association, and this transforms Jewish culture. No longer are community structures and the norms that are involved and the authority of the rabbis any longer. The rabbi is nothing more, uh, even the most glorified rabbi is, a, is an employee. He can be hired or fired by his congregation or her congregation. In other words, that's what Judaism becomes. It becomes a religion like every other religion, and the structure of Judaism, therefore, is totally voluntary. That, in many respects, is a transformation of Jewish life in Europe, eventually in America, uh, and throughout the world. Only, perhaps, with the reinforcement of Jewish law in Israel uh, in the very modern era, after 1948, do certain laws become, secular laws uh, become also, religious laws become also secular laws. But of course, in most of the world, that is not the case. One other thing about the modern period is the notion of emancipation. I mentioned this to those of you who were with me earlier in the day, that from the perspective of the donors of emancipation, that is the states that were granting Jews free rights, something that they lacked before, 
In other words, they're kind of cutting edge. So on the one hand, they are free. On the other hand, they no longer have that community they had in the past. But there are also expectations placed upon them. The state expects them to assimilate, to acculturate, to become part of the larger culture of the majority culture, to essentially become invisible with respect to their Jewish identity. On the other hand, the recipients of this emancipation somehow assume that in one way or another, they can continue to be Jews. They can continue to preserve their specific identity. So here again, in the modern era, the tension between holding on to something like particularity within a world which is homogenized, universalized, is something which very, very challenges the very existence of, of modern Jewish identity. Modern Jewish identities, therefore, are trying to find a solution to this problem. How can I be Jewish in a secularized, universalized world where universalism calls to me to be like everyone else and to give up my specificity as a Jew? Within this particular context, I want to talk about the idea of the Messiah. And I want to argue, um, essentially, that in the modern era, the messianism does not disappear. The idea of the Messiah, the idea of the restoration of the Jews to their land, the idea of a universal peace, but it is transformed. And I want to suggest three ways in which that idea is transformed. In the first place, it is secularized. In the second place, it is politicized. And in the third place, it is universalized. In other words, and it is always part of a conscious strategy on the part of Jews to fit into Western civilization. I want to speak about three major manifestations of this idea in the modern era. And then I want to add a fourth at the end, which doesn't really fit in, which is a very recent phenomenon, but is, is still very much prevalent and thus suggests indeed the relevancy of our idea. But let me first speak about the three classical manifestations of the messianic idea in modern Jewish experience. The first emerges in the 19th century, primarily with a movement of academic uh, involvement called in German Wissenschaft des Judentum, or the science of Judaism. It was the beginning, really, of my professional ancestors, the academic study of Judaism. Jews were now trying to rethink Jewish experience in order to make it more understandable, more palatable, uh, more recognizable by the non-Jewish world. By speaking in a discourse which academics outside of Jewish learning could understand. This particular movement was also connected with various ideologies. In other words, the first is to present a kind of positive image of the Jew, to rehabilitate that image, which is seen as a kind of old medieval manifestation. Now let's study Jewish history. Let's study the Jewish past. Let's show how Jews fit in to the larger culture of Western civilization, how they contribute to that culture. And thus, by doing so, to somehow make the image of Jews in Judaism not as a kind of demented civilization, but fitting in so beautifully in the larger cultural space. But along with this was also reformist tendencies. In other words, to make Judaism, as it now looks, more recognizable, more image conscious in, in the larger world of Western culture. I'm speaking specifically about the emergence of reform Judaism, uh, a synagogue like this, 
also conservative and neo-orthodoxy, and I've spoken about some of these movements before. But here I want to focus on Reform Judaism in particular. And I want to speak about its, its notion of itself, but particularly how it used and transformed the Messianic idea. Messianism is a vital part of Reform Judaism. So those of you that are members of the synagogue, all right, I'm speaking directly to your particular context. The Messianic idea, as Reform Jews understood it, was number one, depersonalized. A number, in other words, the idea of a Messiah, you know, being led by Elijah on a donkey, and uh, the, the, the personal idea of Messiah made no sense to Reform Jews trying to fit into the Western world. So therefore, instead of a, a Messiah, we have a Messianic era. In other words, an era which will bring about peace and universal brotherhood uh, or sisterhood for all humankind. And the Messiah idea is naturalized, no longer the supernatural intervention of God opening up the heavens and declaring the messianic era is going to become. Uh, it, it, it is rather brought about by the natural actions of human beings striving to transform the world, trying to make themselves better and also to make the entire world better. And finally, the Messiah idea in early Reform Judaism is denationalized. The Galut, which had been seen as something, the exile, the diaspora, as something that was negative as opposed Jew, uh, God had cast the Jews out into the diaspora, was now transformed into an opportunity rather than a punishment the opportunity for individual Jews to share their ideas with a larger world. Not so much to missionize in the sense of converting them to Judaism, but to missionize in the sense of taking their moral legacy, their pure moral legacy, their Ten Commandments, the ritual life, and all of that, and to give it to the world so that it would make the world a better place. In other words, in the opportunity of living in diaspora, Jews had the responsibility of what they called the mission of Israel. Not in the sense, again, of missionary actually converting. Jews were never interested in converting non-Jews to Judaism, but in bringing their ideas to the larger world. Therefore, there was no idea of a nation, of returning to a nation. It was always this, uh, this idea that within the diaspora, we can find a place for ourselves. Our universal monotheism can contribute to the culture at large, we can not only transform ourselves, but transform the whole world. Now, that was the original idea of early reform. Reform Judaism, of course, changes over time. And by the 20th century, Reform Judaism had embraced Jewish nationalism, had embraced Zionism, had embraced Hebrew, had returned to ritual, and believe it or not, and here I, I actually have, I'm not going to read it to you, but uh, pages of pages of different statements by Reform rabbis from the 19th into the 20th century. And while early on they speak about this mission of Israel, it becomes a little bit pretentious. Why are Jews so much more moral than Christians, or any people for that matter, and therefore, the idea that we have to give a mission to the world sounded a bit too much. If you read, for example, and here, let me just show you if I can find it, um, the San Francisco Platform of Reform Judaism, I'm just taking it at random, 1976. Early Reform Jews, newly admitted to general society 
and seeing in this the evidence of a growing universalism, <clears throat> regularly spoke of Jewish purpose in terms of Jews' service to humanity. In recent years, we have become freshly conscious of the virtues of pluralism and the value of particularism. Notice how the world has changed. By 1976, no longer is that idea of the mission of Israel at all meaningful. The Jewish people, in its unique way of life, validates its own worth while working towards the fulfillment of the messianic expectation. Now notice how that idea has been transformed over a century. So reform clearly evolved. But initially, the messianic era, the idea of a depersonalized messianic era, and the idea of social action, in other words, that still is the watchword of particularly of liberal Jews. Tikkun olam, going out to change the world, to transform the world. The social activism of the, this particular branch of Judaism is well known. And in many, replace, in many respects, it replaces the heavy emphasis upon halakha and ritual life, which is more a part of conservative uh, and orthodox Judaism. Although even in this area, reform has rediscovered ritual as a vital, a vital ingredient of the religious life. So clearly, reform has adjusted and transformed itself, but at its initial beginnings, as you see, the messianic experience had been transformed. Now let me turn now to my second manifestation of the messianic idea uh, in modern Jewish history. And that is the history of Jewish socialism. This, of course, comes at the end of the 19th century. To those of you that heard me this morning, and I know it's only a few of you, I spoke about the fact that in the second half of the, of the 19th century, Jews had reached a crisis. They had believed that they could integrate, that they could become a part of the larger culture, and that ultimately they would be accepted. But rather than acceptance, they engaged with much hatred and hostility. And in the second half of the 19th century, the rise of anti-Semitic movements, both in Western and Eastern Europe, and particularly reaching its crescendo, as I explained uh, as well, in 1881-1882 with a series of pogroms breaking out in Eastern Europe, the Dreyfus Affair uh, and uh, the, uh, the impact uh, that this had on Theodor Herzl and Zionism and so on, the feeling that ultimately the Jews can't make it in Europe and that despite their best efforts at integration, it was no longer possible to become a part of Western culture. As uh, Leon Pinsker, a thinker that I also mentioned this morning, forgive me if I repeat myself, but those, most of you did not hear me, Leon Pinsker in a work called Auto-Emancipation spoke about a disease that plagued Western society called Judophobia, a fear of Jewish ghosts. Clearly, this enlightened doctor, writing this pamphlet, argued that essentially the only way for Jews to survive this horrible hostility was to remove themselves from the, the world of Europe and to create their own Jewish state. We'll speak about that approach in just a second. But at the same time, there were other radical approaches to this problem. In other words, if indeed European society and anti-Semitism are part and parcel of the same thing, when you listen to Beethoven and Bach, you also hear Wagner and the other anti-Semites of the 19th century, how can you deal with this problem? Well, one way, of course, is the Jewish state is getting out. Another way is just to, 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 to emigrate, as millions and millions of Jews did. 
But there was also a third way, and that was the way of socialism and Marxism. Jews bought hook, line, and sinker, the socialist ideal. Jews became involved in socialism from its early inception. Indeed, as many of you know, Karl Marx was born to an assimilated, converted Jewish family, and indeed, he reflects on his Jewish heritage even in his own writings. Marx, of course, for Marxism, uh, Jewish identity was, and for Marx himself, was a, a minor reflection of what he was writing about. But nevertheless, there is clearly a, a, a remarkable attraction that Marxism and socialism had for Jews. On the one hand, it somehow could be translated into the prophets, into their prophetic writings, into this universal urge. This notion of social justice was very much at the heart of what the socialists painted in terms of the world. Let's create a egalitarian utopia. Let's create a world where the proletariat and the bourgeoisie uh, fight it out and ultimately the dictatorship of the proletariat takes place and ultimately we have a society where everyone is equal. It sounds like a remarkable idea, doesn't it? Uh, why, removing all of privilege in society, uh, overcoming the capitalist system where there are poor and there are rich, where everyone has all the rights. One could link this so easily as the, the philosopher Hermann Cohn did to Judaism. The universal prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, uh, Jeremiah all speak in terms of universal justice which is in harmony with the socialist ideal. Hermann Cohn, the great Jewish philosopher himself, was a, uh, a socialist, not a Marxist, but a socialist. In other words, believing essentially in the moral attitude which socialism and in, in which he imbibed from socialism. And therefore, many Jews in the West joined socialist parties and became involved in the rhetoric of socialism. But I would also argue that socialism was attractive. And look, I mean, just mentioning some of the names of the people, uh, Moses Hess, LaSalle, Trotsky. I mean, it, it wasn't just the Marx himself who was Jewish. We can make a whole long list of names uh, and uh, uh, of Jews who were attracted to this in incredible ways. Um, but Jews imbibe the socialist ideals, as I was saying, not only out of this universal need to, to, to practice their morality, it was also in their own self-interest. Because given the fact that anti-Semitism was so much an intrinsic part of the system of present-day Europe, or, or in the 19th century, that is. Clearly, their hope of destroying the very foundations of that society and creating a new one was something that was very attractive, because it would mean that the Jewish problem would go away. In fact, in a book uh, where Marx addresses the Jewish problem, actually, these were selections that were put together later by an editor, <clears throat> but it deals exclusively with the Jew. Marx suggested that Judaism was part of the problem of religion in society. Let's get rid of religion. Let's get rid of differences. Let's get rid of, of, of all of, of, of the hierarchies which religion create. And let's therefore create a classless society which will have no Jewish problem. And Jews believe this hook, line, and sinker. They believe that somehow their own personal stake was tied up with a socialist ideal. Of course, the bottom line is that the Marxist revolution and the socialist revolution 
uh, in Russia didn't turn out exactly as those who believed it would. Uh, it turned out to be more inequality. 1881-82, when Jews were involved uh, in socialism, they were astounded by the fact that so many of the same radicals in Russian society had also been anti-Semitic, even with their universal notion of socialism. Socialism did not eradicate the problem of anti-Semitism, and Jews became increasingly aware by the end of the 19th century, particularly in Eastern Europe. And you know, there's nothing worse than a revolutionary who fails, who sees this group of people out there reminding him of his failure. Look, you didn't do what you promised us. We are still uh, without uh, any rights, without any privileges. We are still treated hostily. How can you do this? This is the great socialist revolution. And indeed, what emerges in Russia is an incredible story. It's a story that I don't really have the time to tell, but I tell in only two sentences. Essentially, Jews realized that they could not be part of a universal socialist organization. And they broke off and they founded an organization called the Bund. The Bund was a Jewish expression of the socialist party in Russia, but they met separately. And somehow they tried to preserve their identity because they still felt as victims even within this socialist world. And what happens, of course, leading up to uh, 1905 and 1917, the Russian Revolution and so on, which proves to be a very anti-Semitic event, in other words, where many Jews are slaughtered in massacres, 1903 in Kishinev, but his whole series of events throughout the, the, the second decade of the 20th century into the third decade, where millions of Jews are actually destroyed in Eastern Europe. It is clear from those who become members of the Bund that clearly they are different, that they are particular. The irony of ironies is that this Jewish socialist organization becomes less socialist and more Jewish, primarily in its victimhood and becomes more aware of itself. And it begins to address itself in the language of the Jewish proletariat, which is not Hebrew, it's Yiddish. And therefore, Yiddish becomes the language of Jewish socialism. And the Bund becomes identifiable with the culture of Yiddish, of Yiddish literature, of Yiddish speaking, of, 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 of a whole Yiddish world that had gone on for centuries previously in Ashkenazic Europe. When the Jews leave Eastern Europe, they bring the Bund and their Jewish socialism to the Lower East Side of Manhattan, of New York. And there, the Jewish theater in Yiddish. And there, the Jewish newspapers, the forwards. And all of this Yiddish culture is still bound up in trade unionism, in a kind of new uh, avenue of socialist activity. And they also bring it to Israel. In other words, creating the Histadrut, the Jewish socialist organization of labor parties in Israel, the whole labor movement in Israel, Mapai, uh, Mapam, Achduta Avuda, these were all political parties uh, in the Israeli system. The kibbutz movement, all of this emerged out of that legacy of socialism. In the case of Zionist socialism, these two movements could be combined. So I figure like Bear Borchov could analyze the entire Jewish situation, speaking about a pyramid where uh, in a normal period, a pyramid on the bottom are the proletariat, and then as you go up the pyramid to the highest levels to the rich. But the problem of the Jewish shows is a reverse pyramid, where on top are all these white-collar guys, and there's no proletariat. So what we have to do in Israel is create a proletariat of workers, 
And then we will become part of a universal socialist movement. But first comes our particularity. Notice how the fusion of Jewish Zionism with socialism. So clearly, a, so what is socialism if not a secularized version of messianism? The Jewish utopia, the creation of the better world, the kibbutz movement, uh, the, the hopes and, and dreams of Jews living on the Lower East Side in New York. This is a remarkable legacy for Jews and Judaism as manifest in this version of the messianic movement of Judaism. Uh, it's gone though, isn't it? It's a kind of vanished world. Um, the irony of ironies is that there is no longer a Jewish socialist movement, although um, uh, it should have been around. Maybe there are some who are still Jewish socialists uh, or Jews on the left, let us say. Um, uh, socialism, of course, did not put out the fires of anti-Semitism. Jews were now hated for two reasons. On the one hand, they were capitalists, they were Rothschilds, and therefore targets of the socialist movement. But the Jews who entered the socialist movement became known as Jewish socialists or Jewish commies. In other words, you could be hated now for being a communist or socialist or being a capitalist. It didn't matter. You could, there were now extra reasons for you to be hated. Nevertheless, socialism is a glorious tradition of modern Jewish experience. And although it is past, although the Lower East Side is no longer the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and although there are nothing but remnants, the irony of irony is that the majority of Yiddish speakers today are Hasidim. They're not socialists. Uh, the socialist movement has passed on in terms of the secular Yiddish culture that it produced, the culture of the common worker. And this brings me, pardon me? The forwards is still there and it's still very active, of course, in its English version, yes. No, absolutely, all right, we'll take questions in just a second. Let me, let me move on to the third part. So here I'm going to do this even more briefly, but I, I need to throw in the element that I have been emphasizing for some of you already, but I need to fill it in for those of you that have not heard me. The third manifestation, of course, of Messianism is Zionism. I spoke this morning about Zionism and its paradoxical uh, attitude towards the world. On the one hand, Zionism was an attempt to normalize the Jewish situation, to create a Jewish state like other states and to be like everyone else. And we even talked this morning about, uh, or this afternoon, about Klatskin, a person who simply wanted the Jews to be normal, not to have any culture. But clearly there were a group of Zionist thinkers who saw in some form of Zionism to be what is called in Aramaic, Reshita de Geula, the beginning of redemption. And therefore they link the messianic idea of returning to Israel to Jewish nationalism of the 19th century. For them, the chosenness, the idea of a special people, the idea of Israel being a laboratory of human relationships, a light unto the nations, became a clarion call of their understanding of Jewish nationalism. Israel would not be a state like other states. It would be a unique place where Jews could create their moral environment, their spiritual environment. The kibbutz, of course, was a manifestation of that. In other words, there were various forms in which this utopian ideal, this messianic ideal could play itself out. There were the seculars, but there were also those who wanted a theocracy, those who wanted the halakha now to become the law of, of Israel itself, and where religious and secular would no longer be separate, but would be uh, uh, created in one. 
Uh, I did not speak about Rav Kook, for example, the great uh, chief rabbi of Israel in the 1920s, who spoke about Israel and the land of Israel as being a place where a Jewish moral universe could emerge. And therefore, indeed, Zionism for these individuals was not simply a nationalist movement. It was clearly uh, uh, the involvement of, uh, of the messianic idea played out uh, through the activity of human beings. Indeed, some of the Orthodox protested initially, and a group of Zionist Orthodox rabbis argued, uh, Kalisher and Alkali in particular, uh, and, and, and Rav Kook later on, and a whole group of others, that indeed we need not wait for the Messiah to come. We can begin the process by Yeshuv Haaretz, by building in the land of Israel itself. And therefore, the same messianic urge the same creative uh, uh, poss possibilities that Messianism held for the Jews manifest themselves also in the history of Zionism. Zionism, therefore, had both the normal characteristics of any national movement, but it also had this special relationship to a Jewish tradition of Messianic activity. And clearly, the idea of the land of Israel, of this particular location, and of the revival of the Hebrew language and of Hebrew culture, all of this was part of this messianic vision, either a combination with socialism or a capitalist version or a religious theocratic version or a combination of all of those, for example, religious kibbutzim, for example, all were possibilities. Of course, all of these visions were variegated and all of them were sometimes divisive. So therefore, the utopian dream was broken up into many utopian dreams, and sometimes, and still manifest today, Jews fight among themselves in trying to put forward their own version of how they see the Messianic era. And this brings me finally to my fourth uh, dimension of the Messianic experience. The first, you recall, Reformed Judaism. The second, Jewish Socialism. The third, Jewish Nationalism, Zionism. The fourth is very hard to characterize as a movement, but nevertheless, it is there. And I refer to two manifestations of this. Again, things that after 20 lectures, they all blend into each other. So if I, I begin to repeat, I mean, it's, it's a marvel I haven't already, but if I begin to repeat, you will forgive me, those of you that have heard me more than once. I'm referring, on the one hand, to certain aspects of Hasidism. We spoke about the Hasidic movement, uh, and I can think of two. Hasidism, uh, as I tried to point out, as interpreted by one historian, was an attempt to neutralize the messianic idea. It was a reaction to that mess messianic figure that I mentioned in a previous lecture called Shabtai Tzvi. But the messianic idea is too strong. It's too strong a powerful urge within Judaism. So we have two examples of Hasidic movements where the messianic idea explodes. One of them is most recent. The first is the case of the Breslava Hasidim. I'm speaking about a remarkably interesting figure named Nachman of Breslav, who lived in the 19th and early in the 19th century. He did not leave an heir to his dynasty, to his Hasidic dynasty. And therefore, the Breslav Hasidim, who wear these white yarmulkes, and you can see them uh, especially in Israel, uh, still believe the Messiah is about to come. And therefore, and Nachman would return as the kind of Messiah. 
But even more prominent is a messianic movement that broke out in the ranks of Chabad. Uh, many of you know Chabad because Chabad as a ubiquitous Hasidic movement is also in Orange County. I'm referring to the Lubavitch Rebbe, the previous Lubavitch Rebbe who died and was assumed by some to be not only the Messiah, but a kind of divine uh, incarnation of the Messiah. This created a rather uh, stirring controversy, both within the movement and beyond. Uh, and, of course, in the incredible publicity about Chabad, the idea of Mashiach coming, the Messiah is coming, and so on, referring to Schneerson, referring to the previous Hasidic Rebbe, uh, raised eyebrows. How could Jews speak about a Messiah coming, a human being who also held some kind of divine, uh, a divine incarnation. It sounded almost like Christianity. Um, and indeed, the controversy, uh, you can ask your, your local Chabad rabbi about it, uh, has simply sort of gone, been swept under the carpet. Uh, but clearly, it caused a great stir that indeed, even within modern Jewish Orthodox circles, the possibility of an imminent messianic movement emerging was quite powerful. The other manifestation of this in modern times, of course, is very politically connected. And here I speak about uh, the Jewish settlements, uh, and I speak about a movement called Gush Emunim, the Block of the Faithful, about a group of religious Jews who believed that only with settling the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, will the Messiah come. In other words, their own urgings, their sense of divine mission is caught up with the idea of the Messiah. These are traditional Messianic ideas. Uh, in my seminar, which I give on the Messianic idea at Penn, uh, we read several of the writings of Gush Emunim. And uh, earlier in the class, my Jewish students have read, or my non-Jewish students as well, have read um, um, Maimonides on the Messiah who is quite critical of the idea of these supernatural interventions and these divine fanatics walking around. He wanted, to he wanted to really control their passions, which he thought could be dangerous to Judaism. But the same Gush Emunim take Maimonidean texts and transform it, and I won't try to explain how they do it, it's a little complicated, but they use these texts to justify their own uh, notion of tihur aretz, of purifying the land where only Jews can live in the land before the Messiah will come. So here we have uh, a political ideology which is wrapped up in a messianic ideology. It is certainly not the majority of Jews, but it is a, and it is not clearly even the majority of the settlers to be totally fair. But nevertheless, this ideology can be found among certain circles in Israel today which suggests that even old messianic ideas can find uh, new vessels. One could say that, that clearly uh, this is a part of a redefinition of Zionism on the part of the settlers, a, de a definition very different than the socialists uh, and, and, and other groups that uh, understood Israel to be something entirely different. But this is the world that we live in today, a world that is very divisive, uh, not only among the Jews, but among uh, lots of different people. And clearly, the issue of the Messiah has played out again. So let me bring this to a close. And I'm even early, which is fantastic, but I, I want to leave time for questions and comments. Um, and I heard that there are very good cookies out there as well, so we must remember that as well.
I need, uh, I'm going to read, try to read to you if I can see this, uh, just the, a part of the ending that I had originally wanted to close with. I haven't been able to look at it very carefully up to now, but let me see if I can make it out. I need not recite to you the revolutionary impact of Zionism. This is the last words I want to say about Zionism, and then I want to sort of summarize. So I will finish very shortly. I need not recite to you the accomplishments and revolutionary impact of Zionism in the last century, uplifting a powerless and disenfranchised people, offering them the will to live in the shadows and agonies of death, a triumph of the human spirit. But no revolution is an absolute good or an unmitigated evil. Zionism offered Jews a new hope, a new pride, a social vision, a self-reliance. Yet anti-Semitism was clearly not eradicated, nor the problem of Jewish identity, nor has redemption fully yet come. At least I have not seen it. Um, clearly, um, Zionism, however, through its messianic spirit, brought all of these positive things, but also left us with a quandary. So we return to our initial observation. That is the observation that I started with when I began this whole series. And I kind of summarized it when I began this evening. So I hope all of you are with me. We return to our initial observation. We have observed the incredible preoccupation of Jews with the Messiah and redemption from the beginning of its long history, in other words, in the first centuries of the Common Era, to our own. We are reminded of the symmetry of the past. In other words, the story of ancient messiahs like Bar Kokhba, who we spoke about at one point, or Shabtai Tzvi, or even Sholom's, Gershon Sholom's comparison, the great scholar of Shabtai Tzvi, comparing the followers of Shabtai Tzvi with this same block of the faithful, uh, Gush Emunim. Whether we like it or not, we are still, as Jews, preoccupied with searching for saviors. We have observed both the creative and uplifting energies of our people unleashed in the name of the Messiah. We have also seen the more fatal excesses of messianic self-delusion and self-destruction. Messianism, as we also observed, requires a high price. It is both grand to live with hope, but it also creates an air of unreality. We are never gratified. We are always demanding more. Uh, I find that not only among Jews, but Indians and all kinds of, of, of people striving always to do to be better. Whether our messianic passion shall lead us to the stirring heights of a better moral universe or the crushing blows of failure and self-disillusionment, I cannot predict. I can only hope. I can only pray. Thank you. Oh, and I see, I forgot something. Can I give you a postscript after that? As I said, I was going to finish it at eight. It's only five of eight. Um, I know you want me to finish, but uh, I, I wanted to teach actually one text. I'm, I'm, I just wanted to, some of you, were, were any texts given out for this lecture? Yes. Yeah? Some of you have it? All right, over email. I must finish with a remarkable text, and this will be the last thing I'm going to teach to you in my 20 lectures. Uh, and I won't read the whole thing because it's too long. 
But it is by a man named Isaac Deutscher. I wanted to uh, use it when I was talking about Jewish socialism. Deutscher was a Marxist historian. Uh, he wrote uh, books on, on Trotsky, and he also wrote a book on Stalin. Um, and he was a Marxist theoretician and historian who was born in, in Poland, raised among Hasidim, broke off from that whole tradition, and settled in London where he became uh, an author. He wrote a work called The Non-Jewish Jew, which was published in 1958. Uh, the beginning is really quite remarkable. Uh, and I would put it in a messianic context. Uh, if any of you have the text, uh, pull it out. If not, read it uh, at home, or let me paraphrase it for you. It begins with the story of a very famous heretic of the rabbinic age called Elisha ben Abuya. Elisha ben Abuya uh, was accused of being a heretic, and he was known as, uh, as the mean, as the heretic in the rabbinic age. Uh, the Deutsche tells us how fascinated he was with this character. Uh, and he tells the story uh, that when one day Elisha ben Abuya met Rabbi Meir, his teacher, they would engage in deep argument. The heretic was riding a donkey. This was on the Sabbath. And Rabbi Meir, as he could not ride on the Sabbath, walked by his side and listened as intently to the words of wisdom uh, falling from his heretical lips that he failed to notice that he and his teacher had crossed the ritual boundary of the Sabbath. In other words, they had gone too far. The great heretic turned to his orthodox pupil and said, uh, look, we have reached the boundary. We must part now. You must not accompany me any farther. Go back. Rabbi Meir went back to the Jewish community. Well, the heretic wrote on beyond the boundaries of Jewry. All right. I just want to use this as, 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 as the metaphor that a Deutscher uses. There was enough in this scene, says Deutscher, to puzzle an Orthodox Jewish child. Why, I wonder, did Rabbi Meir, the leading light of Orthodoxy, take his lessons from a heretic? And why did he show uh, him so much affection? Why did he defend him against other rabbis? My heart, it seems, was with the heretic. Who was he? He appeared to be in Jewry and yet out of it. He showed a curious respect for his pupil's orthodoxy when he sent him back to the Jews on the Holy Sabbath. But he himself, disregarding canon and ritual, rode beyond the boundaries. When I was 13, or perhaps 14, I began to write a play about Elisha ben Abuya and Rabbi Meir. And I tried to find out more about this, guy, this heretic's character. What made him transcend Judaism? Why was he a Gnostic? What, what, uh, was he an adherent of some other school of Greek or Roman philosophy? I could not find the answer and did not manage to go beyond the first art, the first act. The Jewish heretic who transcends Jewry belongs to a Jewish tradition. All right, now this is Deutscher talking about his own Jewish identity as a Marxist theoretician and who as a proud Jew. You may, if you like, Say the heretic, see the heretic as a prototype of those great revolutionaries of modern Jewish thought. Spinoza, Heine, Marx, Rosa Luxemburg, Trotsky, and even Freud. You may, if you wish, to place them within a Jewish tradition. They all went beyond the boundaries of Jewry. They all found Jewry too narrow, too archaic, and too constricting. They all look for ideals and fulfillment beyond it. And they represent the sum and substance of much that is greatest in modern thought, the sum and substance of the most profound upheavals that have taken place in philosophy, sociology, economics, and politics in the last three centuries. Do they have anything in common with one another? 
Have they perhaps impressed mankind's thoughts so greatly because of their special Jewish genius? I do not believe in the exclusive genius of any race. Yet I think that in some ways they were very Jewish indeed. They had in themselves something of the quintessence of Jewish life and of the Jewish intellect. They were a priority exceptional in that as Jews they dwelt on the boundaries of various civilizations, religions, and national cultures. They were born and brought up at the borderlines of various epochs. Their minds matured where the most diverse cultural influences crossed and fertilized each other. They lived on the margins uh, of or in the nooks and crannies of their respective nations. Each of them was in society and yet not in it, of it and not yet not of it. It was this that enabled them to rise in thought above their societies, above their nations, above their times and generations, and to strike out mentally into wide new horizons and far into the future. In ending with Isaac Deutscher, I'm not suggesting this as a model of Jewish identity to anyone. But I would argue that among the various ideologies of Judaism, from Reform to Orthodoxy to Reconstructionism to Secular Judaism, the notion of Deutscher, the non-Jewish Jew, which he calls himself, is quite fascinating and perhaps as authentic as any of the others. In other words, in seeing himself the embodiment of a Marx or a Freud, in seeing the Jew standing at the crossroads of civilization on the margins of that culture as a kind of cultural critic, or perhaps to use the more religious language as a prophet. Uh, Deutscher was arguing, advocating his own deep commitment to the Jewish people. So here is our story of the Messiah and Jewish experience as told in three acts, my three acts, and with an afterword by Isaac Deutscher. I'm finished now. How about that? Eight o'clock, Ari would be proud of me. All right, so now, Fran, how much time should I take? Uh, Ari's not here, go for it. <laughs> All right, so I can hardly see your hands because it's so dark out there. I, I see who's over there, but I'm not going to call on you first this time because you're going to ask that three-part question. Uh, but I am going to call on you, I promise. So all the way in the back. Stand up so I can hear you. A Jew.
So my question after all that is, do you think that there is any chance of ever putting those two back together, or do you think we are caught in a, in a contradiction of different views of messianism that's going to, you know... Okay, you, you read... You started out with politics, and I was going to say no way. But you, 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 you know, you went. You know, I used the expression when I was talking about Hasidism. You, you ended on a very high note. So you, you asked at the end a very important intellectual question, and I could answer you rather uh, simply by saying, when the Messiah comes, everybody will be, will, will find the solutions to all of our problems. But, uh, but that's not really a good answer, I guess. Um, no, you hit about on, on it, you know, without speaking about Obama or any anything that's political, I promised Ari and I promised myself. Uh, putting the, the, There is a, a particularistic and universal dimension of the Messianic idea, and we saw that throughout. Um, and not only in socialism, but also uh, in Reform Judaism, and we also, and in and, and certain versions of of socialist Zionism, the labor Zionism is indeed speaks about a universal vision. And those of you that were with me last night, I can't remember one to the next, but my lecture on Martin Buber uh, was also a reflection of that notion of the universal dimension of Messianism, not its particularistic version. That is the restoration of the temple, uh, the particular rights of Jews and so on. So, or the version of Gush Emunim that I just described very briefly this evening. Um, you're right, and, and of course, in a, in a very facile way, uh, when you know the, the kind of universal moral vision versus the particular needs of the Jewish people, or perhaps expressed in in the language of Hillel, "Im mili ma'ani." You know that uh, expression? Uh, if I'm only for my uh, myself, who am I? Uh, but if I'm help me in the English, if I am. If I'm only for myself, what, what is it? If I'm not for myself, for me, and if I... Right, in other words, that's exactly the kind of dialectic you describe in your question, right? We uh, Jews have their own self-preservation, their own self-concerns uh, that are clearly important. We cannot ignore them. At the same time, we are not only for ourselves. We're also for humanity as a whole. Um, how do we resolve these things? I'm only a mere historian. I don't know how to answer that question. Uh, it is an enormous question, but all I can do is show you that we are, in, uh, we are it is not just the, the predicament of our own presented selves. Uh, okay, more. Okay, uh, I can't help, but my favorite questioner over there. This time tied into the struggle you just spoke of and Stillman spoke of, and my observation, whether it's right or wrong, is the different messianic experiences that you described in the lectures seem at one level to all be striving for a, a time, a place, a moment when Jews are an equal part of society, where the anti-Semitism and the dysfunction toward the Jews is eradicated and humanism, in which Jews are an equal part in which their values and humanistic values are basically adopted by everyone and they can be an equal part of that society. Hence, I think you talked about socialism and the desire to, to embrace thinking that would 
make us part of a larger society, not separate us out, or reform Judaism, turning away from uh, isolating the Jews and making them part of a bigger humanity, and not just talking about Jews and Jewish values, but human values that Jews share with others, and, and Zionism, the struggle between not being just a Jewish state, but Jews just being normal like everyone else. And it seems all of the examples you've given us, Jews have come face to face with anti-Semitism, which knocks them back down and sends them back into a, a more Jewish state of being, as opposed to a, we're all part of this big, beautiful, messianic world. And the irony that struck me is, Thank God for anti-Semitism, because it keeps us Jewish. If it weren't for anti-Semitism, we would perhaps stop Blend. Right. Um, and all of the anti-Semitism makes us return to our huddle and, and uh, revive ourselves as Jews again, as opposed to allowing ourselves just to melt into this messianic pool of humanity. Do you want me to comment on that? That was a wonderful speech. Um, so uh, it, it, that was brilliant, except it's not original. You know who said it before you exactly in the same way? Jean-Paul Sartre, the great existential philosopher, wrote a book called Anti-Semite and Jew. And the thesis of that book is exactly what you stated. You see? You didn't even read Sartre and you knew it already. Um, Sartre uh, wrote that essentially... Um, the anti-Semite creates the Jew. The Jew tries to become part of the larger culture, but he can never forget his Jewish identity because the anti-Semite will remind him. Anti-Semitism is critical for Jewish survival. Now, it's a very interesting, provocative argument, uh, and several authors have played on Sartre's idea and played it out, uh, and one could argue that, in many respects, Jewish organizational life in America, the Anti-Defamation League, B'nai B'rith, etc., etc., uh, essentially survive in terms of their budgets every time there is outbursts of anti-Semitism. In other words, in many respects, the secular organizations of Jewish life, particularly in America, um, are, are clearly, I mean, they would never suggest that anti-Semitism is a good thing, but they are in business as long as there are anti-Semites out there. Um, it clearly is an insight that one cannot ignore, uh, and it, it, the way you put it is very interesting. So the universal dimension is to become part of the larger culture. I think, of course, you could amend that by saying people like Buber somehow wanted to preserve a particular community. In other words, he argued, remember, against Hermann Cohn by saying that you can do it as an individual, you know, have an impact and become part of the oh, I didn't hear larger culture. I'll, I'll step back. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we need to preserve a community, a community that in service to humanity will work together as a community. So it's, it's, I, I think your contrast is good, but it's too stark. I, I, don't, I think there are, uh, there, there are shadings of, of the particularly universal when we talk about the messianic idea. But I would also argue against Sartre that if the only reason for me being Jewish is because the anti-Semite makes me a Jew, it's not enough of an of of it's not enough of a rationale. I mean, it's not enough of a rationale to get me here, to get me involved with your education, or to or to profess my ethnic or religious identity. There have to be positive images of Jewish culture as well. There have to be positive valences that attract me to to my Jewish identity. It can't only be the negative. 
despite the fact that you're right. I mean, uh, it, there's also another uh, very, you know, uh, you remember the expression of Emil Fackenheim? I, I don't know if you ever read anything about in Holocaust Jewish thought, but Emil Fackenheim uh, speaks about a 614th commandment. That commandment emerges at Auschwitz, and he says, we must spit in the face of Hitler by professing our Jewish identity. It's the same exact idea. The, Hitler makes Jews feel more Jewish. Um, and yet, that, that certainly does play a role. Uh, on the other hand, uh, sometimes in our own, out of our own fear and foreboding, it might allow us to lose sight of the fact that there is still our humanitarian ideals. In other words, I don't want to give up on the other aspect of the messianic ideal. I don't want to reduce our own uh, concern for the world around our own self-preservation, no matter how important that is. And it is very important. Uh, we have to care about ourselves. But if we care only about ourselves, then what, who are we? Right. Special, right. That we need to look at ourselves as um, being no more special than a lot of other people who are moral and ethical. Right. And I think my point was that anti-Semitism causes us to to retreat back to the thinking that we are special in our desire to be ethical and moral. Okay. All right. Okay. I buy that, and I I, I think that that's a it's a very nice supplement to what I said tonight. So I appreciate it. All right. Other comments. We're gonna. Uh, we're going to stop shortly, but just one or two more if I see any more hands. Oh, there's one. Okay, sorry, I didn't see you look. It's okay. Um, okay, so I feel really ignorant, so hopefully it's not going to Okay. I feel too ink through. Yeah, okay, go on. Okay, I remember reading, um, I think, The Chosen by the Hotel. Yeah. And I remember that, I think it was that book, but I remember reading um, that the uh, Orthodox community in the story were against Zionism and the formation of Israel, and I remember that once it happened, it was like, okay, if that's the way it's going to be, and they moved on. But I never understood what was the issue with the Orthodox community, assuming it was representative accurately. The Orthodox community being against Zionism. With the formation of Israel, yes. Yeah. Well, no, the idea is very simple, and uh, the, I've referred to these two rabbis who are in this book, The Zionist Idea, uh, Kalashir and Alkali, uh, who were revolutionaries. They were, they were Orthodox rabbis. Essentially, the concern with the Orthodox and the original reason why their impulse was to reject Zionism was because um, redemption, Jews only return to Israel when God redeems them. In other words, when God intervenes in nature, and brings about their redemption by the coming of the Messiah. In other words, by taking, God, uh, by taking uh, human action to bring about the settlement of the Jews, we are essentially usurping God's role. And therefore, they resisted Zionism because they saw it as a secular manifestation of idolatry, basically. It wasn't d doing, we need to wait uh, you know the uh, you know Elijah Eliyahu Navi, you know the song that you sing on on uh, on Mosei uh, Shabbat. Even though we have to wait, even though he tarries, we need to wait for him. That was the Orthodox view, um, and therefore intervening and stirring things up 
had to be rethought within Orthodox Jewish thought. There are still Orthodox Jewish thinkers today that reject Zionism for that reason. But of course, the majority of Jews do accept Zionism and have their amended Messianic Orthodox thought by suggesting the notion that while Zionism is not redemption, it is the beginning of redemption. Reshita de Geula. And as a result, it helps together with God to bring about the ultimate redemption, which is still not taking place. So that's the answer. And as I said, there were also a group of reform rabbis um, called the American Council for Judaism, who in the name of their universal notions of Judaism, of morality and ethics, saw Jewish nationalism as being too particular, uh, and therefore they broke off from the majority of the reform rabbis in the 1940s to create a counter-anti-Zionist movement. So there were always Jews who resisted this, uh, and thus um, it was a challenge initially for the Zionist movement, but of course uh, with the creation of the State of Israel, the overwhelming majority of Jews uh, uh, did uh, identify with Jewish nationalism and with the state, uh, although, as we have seen, different notions of what, of how this will be played out. And, and I think, um, I think that when you spoke about Yeah, no. In the, in the, in when 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 Geiger and Hirsch were writing uh, and developing their theologies of Judaism, Zionism was hardly around, and neither of them even talked in nationalistic terms. They spoke only religious terms. Thank you. Uh, so I see two. All right, you choose the one because I'm not. I don't want to be a, play favorites here. Okay. What what is not unique? Yeah, absolutely. Right. My question to you is, is Judaism the first culture or religion to incorporate this concept of messiahship? And how is it different from other cultures' notions? Oh man, that's a, like a little question, yeah? Uh, that's like a course you asked me. Um, so uh, these two over here asked the tough questions. Um, so, um, the notion of the Messiah is not biblical. There is a concept of Mashiach in the Bible, but it's, it, and it refers to, to David and to other kings. But the idea, the, the, the term Mashiach means anointed. And it doesn't necessarily have the implications of the messianic idea, uh, at all. So one can say that the messianic idea is relatively late. It begins in the second temple period, in the period of Hellenism, Rome. And there it emerges probably in the context of other uh, ancient religious experiences. Um, and, of course, ancient Christianity, which emerges at the same time. Uh, clearly the most prominent messianic figure when we can identify, and, and even then we have a whole literature of apocalyptic literature, which reflects certain Middle Eastern and Hellenistic ideas, but while this is utopian literature, it doesn't have a messianic figure necessarily. The first messianic figure is someone like Bar Kokhba. And Bar Kokhba is more or less simultaneous a little later than Jesus. Uh, so clearly, um, the, the question of messianism, uh, one could argue, uh, emerges late within Judaism and emerges in the context of other ancient Near Eastern religions and including Christianity. So there's this kind of mutual stimulation of the two. When Jesus is declared a messianic figure, when he is identified as a divine uh, messianic figure, clearly much of Judaism is 
an attempt to respond to that notion and to reject it or to polemicize with it uh, or to somehow deflect it in a way uh, of, of defining. So if you look at Messianic thought, for example, in the Talmud, and it's scattered all over the place, you will see that on the one hand, um, it is it takes a position which is quite strongly, it never says Christianity, but it's clearly meant to deflect the Christian idea or to deflect the idea of these messianic figures that are running around as lunatics declaring themselves the Messiah. The Messiah is kind to come. They want to somehow tame the idea. The, the, the rabbis want to tame the idea and bring it down to, to scale. It appears again in the Islamic period. So Islam, under the influence of certain sectarian groups that are messianic, Islam is not necessarily messianic as a whole, but there were certain sectarian groups that emerged in the 6th, 7th century uh, during the Umayyad and Abbasid realms, um, the end of the Umayyad and the beginning of the Abbasid realm, Jew Jewish messianism emerges again. So to make a long story short, I can't go through this whole history, um, at least in relationship to Christianity and Islam, and as you saw in the case of Shabtai Tzvi, notice how they convert, some of the followers of Shabtai Tzvi convert to Christianity, convert to Islam, and so on. Um, the, the, the idea is not isolated. It's integrated into the long history of relationships between Judaism, Christianity, Islam. I can't speak about Asian religions. I don't know enough about them. But at least in terms of these three Western religions, one can say that one particular religious experience has an impact on the other. And clearly, in terms of the Messianic idea, Jews get some of their Messianic frenzy from the external environment. As I pointed out in a previous lecture, Messianic Judaism is particularly profound in Sephardic cultures. And of course, Sephardic cultures, what I mean by that, Jews who lived under Islam. So clearly, the impact of Islamic Sufism, for example, on Judaism is quite significant. And in terms of these messianic ideas, remember Maimonides writes this letter to the Jews of Yemen. They ask him, what are we going to do with this messianic figure? And Maimonides says, cool it. He's not really a messiah after all. But notice where it's coming from. It's coming from a totally Islamic environment. So your question is very important. We need to integrate my story. I have to give another three lectures, but that's, you know, in another lifetime. Um, on uh, how we integrate this messianic idea with uh, the larger religious cultures. So, great question, and I, my fumbling answer you just heard. Thank you.